Well, this morning we're going to carry on in our study in the book of Ephesians. So if you have your Bibles, either a, a paper version or an electronic version, uh, if you don't have either of those, there should be a version somewhere in front of you there. Uh, if you would come and uh, uh, turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Now, before we get there, I want to begin by telling you a story because it's going to help us understand this passage. Story comes from the Old Testament, from the time of the prophet Elisha. And uh, you, you don't have to turn there now, but if you want to read it later, you can find it in uh, 2 Kings chapter 6. It goes like this. In those days, uh, the king of Syria was, was the powerful king in the day, and he was sending his army down into Israel on raids. And the king of Israel, his army wasn't strong enough to defeat the king of Syria. And so he's kind of hiding out. In fact, the king of Syria gave an order to his army. He wanted them to capture the king of Israel as like a, as like a trophy for him. And so God began to, to tell Elisha uh, where the king of Syria was going to be. And Elisha would send messages to the king of Israel. He'd say to him, look, the king of Syria, his army is lying in wait for you in such and such a valley. Don't go there. And the king of Israel would send some spies. They'd come back. They'd say, sure enough, they're hiding out there. And so he'd avoid there. And, and, and this happened a number of times until finally the king of Syria called his officials together. And he was, he was angry. And he said to him, who here among us is spying on us for the king of Israel? And his officials, they're all terrified. Finally, one sort of pipes up and says, actually, sire, none of us are. The prophet Elijah, Elisha rather, prophet Elisha hears from God. He can tell the king the very words you say in your bedroom. He's the one who's been warning the king of Israel. So the Syrian king said, okay, well, I'm going to put a fix to that. Where is Elisha? And they found him in a little town in Israel. And so he ordered his army to march through the night and to surround that, that little town so that first thing in the morning they could capture Elisha. The Bible tells us in that morning that it was actually Elisha's servant who got up first, a young man. And we don't know exactly what happened, but he must have gone outside onto the balcony or, or onto, the, onto the rooftop and stretched and yawned and, and looked up. And, and when he looked up, he saw this massive army on all sides of the, of the entire town. Every direction that he looked, here was the Syrian army. Swords and spears glinting in the sun, the, 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 the war horses snorting and, 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 and pounding, ready to, to attack, and all of the men in formation. And the man, the, the, the young guy, rightfully so, he freaks out. He goes back in, he wakes up, Elisha says, get up, you need to come and see this. You will not believe your eyes. And the old man, he got up and he put on his robe and he, he came out onto the balcony or the rooftop, whatever it was, and he, and he looks around. He's like, huh, huh. And the young guy, he's freaking out. And he's saying to Elisha, what, what, what should we do? I mean, what, you know, maybe we run, maybe we hide, but, but this is not good. And Elisha, his response, he turns to the guy, his young servant, he says these words. He says, don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And I can only imagine this young guy kind of looking around and kind of thinking like, I, I like the old guy, but maybe he's losing it, you know? And then, uh, and then uh, Elisha bows his head and he prays his prayer. He says, oh Lord, open his eyes so that he may see. And when the young guy looks up again, he sees still there the mighty Syrian army gathered all around him, but he also sees chariots and, and horses of fire. In other words, he sees the army of the Lord of hosts come to protect Elisha and him and the city. 
And the fact of the matter is it wasn't Elijah who was out of touch with reality. It was actually his young servant who was out of touch with reality because he was only looking at what he could see with his, with his eyes, the physical realm. It was only when his eyes were open to see the spiritual realm, to see the spiritual alongside the physical, that he began to see what was really going on. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us how he reacted, but no doubt everything changed for him in that moment. I mean, before he's freaking out, he's like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Now, now we're totally different. He's probably like, hey, yo, Elisha, dude, check it out. We're all right, aren't we? Maybe doing a little jig, like, <laughs> Maybe he's like, oh, man, now suddenly I'm hungry. Let's go have some bacon and eggs. Like, whatever it was, everything had changed for him. Now, everything hadn't changed. Everything was actually still the same, but because he now could see what was really going on, it had totally changed. The Bible tells us the rest of the story. The, the Syrian army came to attack and Elisha prayed that they would be blinded. Then he went out, he met them, he said, you know, I know the guy you're looking for, come with me. And he led the army, not from, from that city, over to the capital city of Israel, to Samaria. And by this time, they'd of course taken away their weapons. They brought them right into the very heart of the capital of Israel. And then he prayed, dear God, open their eyes. And now is the turn of the Syrian soldiers to be freaking out. And, and, and the king of Israel, he's standing right beside Elisha. He's like, oh, oh, can I kill him? Can I kill him? Can I kill him? And Elisha's response was, no, no, no. Our battle isn't against these guys. These guys are just pawns in, in, the, in the battle that we have with the real power, which is the king of Syria. So you feed them and then you send them home on their way. And that's what he did. Fed them, he sent them home. And the Bible says that for a long while after that, the Syrian army didn't come and raid the, the, the people of Israel. Now, it's a fascinating story. and There's so much that we can learn from it. But the part that I think is so helpful for us today is the first part where Elisha prays that his young servant would have the eyes of his heart, his spiritual eyes open to see the reality of what was really going on for him. And this is what the Apostle Paul is going to do for the church in Ephesus and hopefully for us today in the passage that we're going to look at. Because see, in many ways, the situation that the church in Ephesus faced was not much different than the situation that Elisha and his servant faced. Ephesus, of course, a major port city, not unlike Metro Vancouver. It was like the second or third most important city in the empire. Again, not unlike Vancouver being a second or third of the big cities here in Canada. It was a, a bustling city. It was an important center of trade and commerce and culture. And again, that's very much like the city that we live in. And in the middle of this huge, bustling, important city with everything going on was this little church. Now, we don't know how many Christians there were, but clearly they were in the minority in the midst of this huge city. But that little church was given this mission, and their mission was to reach their city with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The problem that they had was that when they looked up, everywhere they looked, they saw huge opposition from all these different groups, from different institutions and organizations and belief systems that were either subtly or openly opposed to the message of the gospel. So, for instance, the people in Ephesus were deeply involved in the occult and in the, in the worship of spirits. 
And, and in fact, they were so involved in the worship of the occult and the worship of spiritism that uh, Acts 19 tells us that when Paul came to the city, he led a number of them to faith in Jesus. And as a result, they held a public bonfire where they brought out their scrolls that taught them sorcery, that taught them occultism, and that they burned those uh, uh, scrolls in a public bonfire. Now, there wasn't like a huge crowd of people there, and yet somebody there calculated that the value of those scrolls that burned was 50,000 drachma. Now, a drachma was the equivalent of an entire day's wage, so you do the math on that. I mean, these people were deeply, deeply involved in the occult in in a huge way. But it wasn't just the occult that they were involved in. There was also organized religion. And in Ephesus, there was no religion greater than the worship of Artemis. In fact, Ephesus was the center of worship to Artemis. They had built such an amazing temple to Artemis that it was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And all around, this, this religion had developed all of these uh, industries that made their money off of the worship of Artemis. And again, if you read the book of Acts, you know that one of these groups was the statue makers. And they had a deeply vested interest in making sure that no one and nothing drew worshipers away from Artemis. Because, of course, they made a great deal of money from it. And this group was so powerful in the civic politics of that day that when Paul began to lead people away, that they started a riot in the city, drove them out of the city. So this little church also faced opposition from this powerful, vested, wealthy group of people in the city who didn't want the gospel to go forward. But then there was a a third power, a third belief that also opposed the church, and that was the imperial cult, the worship of the emperor. If you lived in Ephesus in that day, there were all kinds of temples and gateways and courtyards and statues, and even the coins that you carried in your pocket They called people to worship the emperor. And in fact, often there would be on these uh, these buildings carved images. They were like the, the billboards of those days. And there was often images of the emperor himself. And trampling under his feet would be any people who opposed him. Any nations that opposed the powers of the Roman army. And any peoples or groups who failed to literally call him Lord and Savior of the world. In fact, the people of Ephesus had so bought into emperor worship, they were so committed to worship of the emperor that they actually changed their calendar. And they had a calendar in that part of Asia Minor that began time with the birth of Caesar Augustus. And every month was on the day of his birth, celebrated his birthday. They did that because in their minds, Caesar Augustus and the Caesars that came after him were the saviors of the world. They were the ones who had brought peace and restored order to their life. And therefore, in their minds, Caesar Augustus was the one who would make sense out of time and history. So the people in Ephesus were deeply committed to worship of the emperor. And then there was another power yet that was opposed to the church. It was what today we would call secular humanism. Between the years of A.D. 11 and 13, the people in Ephesus opened four major temples. The one to Artemis, the, the, the biggest one, their god. One to Caesar Augustus, who they openly worshipped. One to Tiberius Caesar, who was the next Caesar, who was Augustus' son. And then one more temple. And this temple they opened in worship to the demos. The demos means the people of Ephesus. In other words, there was a whole belief system there that said, we the people are responsible for all the good things in our life. We're the ones who have made ourselves successful. And therefore, we are worthy of worship. 
So, here's the little church in Ephesus, surrounded by all these great powers on every side that are dead opposed to the gospel. But, but more than that, behind each of these powers was an even greater power, and that power was a demonic power. You see, there are demonic forces in this, in this spiritual world, in the, around this world, that are openly and deeply rebellious against God. And the way that they rebel against God is not by turning and calling him names. The way that they rebel against God is to use these organizations, these institutions, these powers, and to corrupt them and to use them to oppose the gospel. And to deceive people, to, to, to lead the people of Ephesus away and to enslave them. Now, that doesn't mean that the individuals that were within those institutions and organizations were in any way demon-possessed. Not, not at all. You know, the people who were involved in sorcery, people who worshipped the god of Artemis, those who were so deeply involved in emperor worship, those who were human secularists, those were the very ones that the gospel was to go to, to rescue them, to give them hope and life. The people were not the enemy. But the fact of the matter was, at work within those organizations, through those institutions, were powerful demonic forces that were twisting the truth and using those institutions and those groups of people and those organizations to lead people away from worship to the true and living God. Now, for some of us, particularly those of us from a Western culture, we sometimes struggle with this idea of demonic forces. In fact, uh, while we struggle with it, Paul never did. The early church never did. And frankly, most of the world today doesn't struggle with that. It's really mostly us in a Western culture who have what, what we would call a closed view of what the Apostle Paul calls the heavenly places. In other words, in our minds, there's earth and the physical realm is where we live. There's the heavenly places, sort of heaven and the spiritual world that's over here. And there's a huge gap in between. And every once in a while, like an angel sort of sneaks out of heaven on a mission, comes to earth and accomplishes a mission and goes back. And, and, and when we die, we're set on a one-way train, either straight to heaven or, or straight to hell. And as far as our conceptual thinking is, there is really no interaction or very limited interaction between the heavenly places and the physical realm. But that's not the view of the Bible. The Bible actually holds what we would call an open view of the heavenly places. In other words, the world teaches that, that there is a constant and regular interaction between the physical realm and the spiritual realm. And we see this all through the scriptures and Paul speaks of it uh, with some regularity. For example, look at 1 Corinthians 15, 24. This is what it says there. It says, then the end will come when he, that's Jesus, hands over the kingdom to God, the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. That's those demonic forces. For he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. In Colossians 2, he writes this. And having disarmed the powers and authorities. Again, these are the demonic forces. He, Jesus, made a public spectacle of them. Triumphing over them by the cross. And of course, as we're going to see in our continued study through this book of Ephesians. And even in today's text. He's going to refer to these demonic powers as rulers. As authorities, as dominions, and as cosmic powers over this present darkness. Now, 
You have to understand, Paul doesn't say an awful lot about these demonic forces. So we have to be careful that we don't develop a whole theology about all these demonic forces that are out there. We can only work on what Paul has told us, the little that he says. But, but clearly there are these powerful forces at work in the spiritual world. And they are opposed to the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we as his church should not be unaware of that. So let's take all of this, pull us all together now so we can turn to our text. The church in Ephesus, like any church in any city, had a mission to bring the gospel of Jesus to that city. But they were small and they were opposed by all these very powerful organizations and institutions that had all kinds of money and power and influence. And some of them, like the occult and the the worship of Artemis, were openly driven by demonic forces. And others, like the Roman Empire, the Roman government, and the, and the human secularists, were institutions and belief systems that had been corrupted and twisted by these same powerful demonic forces. And so it would have been easy for the church in Ephesus to look around, to see this vast array of powerful forces against it, and to despair if they would ever be able to accomplish their mission. It would have been very easy for them to become like Elisha's servant and to panic and say, what do we do? I mean, should we just run and hide? And you know, I wonder if sometimes we don't do the same thing. Different age, different institutions, different demonic forces, but the same powerful opposition to the message of the gospel. And sometimes if we're not careful, we look up with our eyes, the things we can see, and we also can despair. And we also can become like Elisha's servant and begin to panic. Oh, will we ever be able to do this? And that's why Paul now writes these words to the church in Ephesus and these words to us. So with your Bibles in hand, would you join me? Let's read Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. This is the word of God. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you remembering you in my prayers. So notice this. This is going to be a prayer. In fact, in your Bible studies this week, you're going to look at this passage in light of it being a prayer and, uh, and what that means for us. So this is Paul's prayer for us as the church. He prays in verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in your knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet And gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So, the Apostle Paul prays this brilliant and this beautiful church for the church in Ephesus in the midst of their situation. So let's go back and look more carefully. In verse 17, he starts out, and his prayer for us and for them is that we might receive a spirit of wisdom and revelation that we may know God better. Now, The way we know who God is, is revealed to us through his word. But so often, the fact is, we know in our head, but it's never quite made its way to our heart, at least not fully. 
I mean, we know academically who God is and what he could do. But in our spirits, we've never come to really, really understand how great and how powerful and how amazing our God is. And that's why Paul puts this as a prayer. Because really, that's only something that God can do in your heart. But his prayer is that we might really see, that we might truly grasp what's going on, who God is. Because you see, otherwise, we have a tendency to make God very small. We have a tendency to say, you know, God has all these plans and he's working on, but he's kind of maybe he's maxed out his potential here. And maybe they're kind of getting rolled back a little bit. Sometimes we, we, we're in danger of saying, you know, like, I know he wants to work through us as the church, but, you know, look at us in the sight of all these other forces that are around us. And, and we shrink back and we think he could never do anything significant in our city through us. And so just like Elisha prayed for his servant, now the apostle Paul prays for us as the church that we might truly understand, that we may really see not just the physical world around us, but with the eyes of our heart, what God is doing. There's four things that he wants us to see. The first one is found in verse 18. is what he says. He prays that the eyes of our heart might be enlightened, that we may know what is the hope to which he has called us. Now, when the Bible speaks of the hope that we have, it, isn't, it doesn't mean, you know, kind of an outside chance that maybe it might come to, to pass. That's not the kind of hope. Instead, when the Bible speaks of hope, it means a deep confidence that comes from knowing what's going on. So let me give you an example. Uh, not long ago, I was uh, reading an article about some uh, two guys, actually, who were sailing their yacht down in the South Pacific you know, among all those little islands down there. And something happened to their yacht. It sank really quickly. And they were able to get off that thing, but they didn't have a chance to send a message to anyone. Uh, and, and they made their way to the shore. And the article was marveling because the U.S. Navy had gone out to look for these guys, and it hadn't taken them that long to find these guys. And they were pretty impressed by this because there's thousands of these uninhabited little islands down there. And the Navy spokesperson was saying, actually, the U.S. Navy has a very sophisticated uh, process and lots of really good experience of finding lost mariners. Now, the two guys on the boat, they didn't say who they were. But let's say, for, just for example, that one of them was me. I have a tendency to stay off boats because sometimes they do that very thing. You know, they sink. Uh, and let's say the other guy was a sailor who had worked in the U.S. Navy for many years. Uh, in fact, he worked in that part of the world. Well, after we had dragged ourselves on shore and I stopped freaking out, uh, we would have built a little fire and then I would have begun to panic. I would say, like, look, look, here we are in the middle of thousands of these little uninhabited islands. No one knows where we are. No way to tell people where we are. This is not good. And then I would have squeaked out something like this. I hope, I hope that someone finds us and that it's not the local headhunters, right? I mean, that, that would have been my hope. The Navy guy, on the other hand, he would have had a different hope. He would have known that right now, at that very moment, there would have been a team of people meeting in a conference room to look at charts and consider tides and currents. And there would have been other men and women who would have been boarding planes and, and getting on ships. And they would have set out a search grid so that they could work through these islands. And he would have known that the U.S. Navy has all kinds of very good experience at rescuing people who are lost. And he might have even known some of the commanders who were in charge of the rescue. And he also would have been in the exact same difficult spot as I was. But he would have had the hope that the Bible talks about. That's the kind of hope that the Apostle Paul wants for us as the church to have. A deep confidence that comes from knowing 
what's really going on. Now, what is it that we're supposed to know? Well, that's what the Apostle Paul's been laying out in the verses before this. He wants you to know, to know, to know that God chose you. You didn't choose him. You didn't stumble on him. He chose you. And he predestined us according to his will because he has a plan and a purpose for us. And he has redeemed us so that we might live and to worship him. And he has revealed to us the mystery of what he is doing in this world so that we would understand what he is doing and we might join him. And he has sealed us with the Holy Spirit that we would know that he will never leave us. That he will, we will never have to do it in our own strength. You see, that's the hope that we have. That's, that's the deep confidence that we have in our lives. That in the end, when everybody else is just hoping that somehow their life is going to work out, that hopefully it's going to work. We got to be like the Navy guy who says, I know, even though things around us are difficult, in the end, it's going to be all right. In fact, in the end, we're going to be victorious because of who we are in Christ. And this is the first thing that the Apostle Paul wants us to really know and see. And that's this. He wants us to know how confident we should be. You know, we should be deeply confident. Not arrogant. We should never be an arrogant people. But neither should we be timid or fearful or withdrawn. We have a hope that comes from knowing who we are in Christ. And that should give us great confidence as we carry out his mission for us in this city. It's the first thing that Paul wants us to really see. Here's the second thing. It comes up next in verse 18. His prayer is that the eyes of our uh, hearts might be enlightened. That we might know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now the question is, what are the riches, of, the riches of whose glorious inheritance in the saints? And the answer is, the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. So, as Pastor Ray pointed out last week, that means that we, the church, are God's glorious inheritance. Now you have to think about that for a moment. Of all the groups, of all the institutions and organizations that God could have chosen as his inheritance, he chose us. It's pretty impressive. I mean, he could have chosen great and powerful governments that could project their power across the globe and command the allegiance of hundreds of millions of people. But he didn't. He could have chosen the great cultural centers of the world as his inheritance. London, Paris, New York, Tokyo. But he didn't choose those. He could have chose Hollywood with all of its influence or Wall Street with its power and its, and its wealth. He could have chosen any number of institutions, organizations, groups, or nations as his inheritance. But you know who he chose? He chose us. And it wasn't like, you know, all the spirits gathered around and God was there and they put all a bunch of numbers in a hat and everyone got to pick a number and they each chose their inheritance and God got the last number. So, unfortunately, he was stuck with us. That's not the case at all. He says, no, no, I chose you among all of the options that there were. You are my number one choice. And we are for him, his glorious inheritance, the riches of his glorious inheritance. Now, I don't know how long you've been in the church, but if you've been around any amount of time, you might shake your head at that a little bit. You know, we're a group of people who got a lot of issues. We got problems. We're hardly perfect. We're certainly not what people would sort of write out as a glorious riches. And yet, and yet that's how God sees us through Jesus Christ. So, what, what are these glorious riches? Well, they're broken lives that he has mended and healed and given hope and, and a future to. 
They're young and old and people of all stages and walks of life who live their life wherever they find themselves for the glory of God. Parents who raise their children to love and to know God. They're they're people from every tongue and tribe and language and nation that he has drawn together because of the cross of Jesus Christ. This is who he chose to be as his inheritance. And this is the second thing the Apostle Paul prays that we as a church would really understand. And this is what it is. How much we are loved. How deeply God cherishes us. How much he values us. Not because we're so great. But because of what Jesus has done through us. And in us. And what he will do through us. We're God's glorious inheritance. His riches. It's pretty cool, isn't it? And there's a third thing that he wants us to know. And understand that's found in verses 19 and 20. He wants... The eyes of our hearts to be enlightened to understand what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Here's the third thing Paul prays that we as a church would really grasp. And that is how great is God's power that is at work in us. The same power that raised Christ from the dead. The same power that conquered sin and death. The same power that seated Jesus at the right hand of God in heaven. That same power is at work in us, both as individuals and as a church. And again, think about that. I mean, some of the forces that are arrayed against the power of the, of the cross, they have incredible wealth. They have tons and tons of money. And some of the powers that are arrayed against the message of the cross, they have, they have huge influence. They have millions of eyeballs that listen as they tell a very compelling message week in and week out all the time. And some of the forces that are opposed to the message of the cross, they have real power and influence, contacts, so they can influence the outcome of laws and judgments so that they run and right in full opposition to the way God calls us to live. There is a great deal of power that is opposed to the message of Jesus Christ. But, but the power that is at work in us is greater than all of that. It is the same power that has conquered death and has given eternal life. And none of those powers, those other powers come even close to that kind of power. Paul prays that the eyes of our hearts would be open to realize that that kind of power is at work in our lives and through us as his church. He prays that we wouldn't be blind to see what God is already doing and what he wants to do in and through us by the power that raised Jesus from the dead. It's the third point, and now Paul ends with one more point. And in some ways it flows out of the last point, and in other ways it kind of encompasses all of these points. And you know, as we've been studying this, you know Paul is so excited. He just kind of has this long run on sentence. He doesn't really stop to breathe. So to understand it, we're going to start again in verse 19 to pick up the, the sense of it. Here's what he says again. His prayer is that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. Verse 19. To know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ. When he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority, and power, and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. 
Here's the last thing that Paul desperately wants us to really see, to totally grasp in our heart of hearts. Because if we do this, even though nothing has changed, everything will change. Here it is. Paul's praise that we would know that Jesus is already victorious. See where it says in verse 21 that God has seated Jesus at the right hand far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Those are those demonic forces that we were talking about. The forces of darkness that seek to corrupt and twist these institutions and these organizations and these powers so that they would oppose the gospel. Paul says they've already been defeated. They were defeated on the day that Jesus died on the cross. The the problem was that they didn't understand what was going on. In, In fact, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, he says, if they had known what would happen through Jesus' death, they would have never allowed it to happen. Now, they may be, they may be fighting as if they're winning, but the fact of the matter is they are losing the battle. Paul wants us to know above all else that Jesus is victorious. And so he ends this passage with two images of Christ. The first is found in verse 22, where it says that God has put all things under his feet. Now think about that from the perspective of the church in Ephesus. In their world, who had all things under his feet? The emperor, right? I mean, everywhere they looked, there was the image of the emperor putting all his enemies under his feet. Paul says, don't you believe what you see? Don't you believe all that's out there? I am telling you that the one who has put all things under his feet is none other than Jesus Christ himself. The first image that he wants the church to see is that Jesus has put his enemies under his feet. But then the second one comes right after that. And he says that God gave Christ to be the head over all things. And therefore the head of the church, which is his body. In other words, the victorious Christ, the one who has put his enemies at his feet and who is head over all things is also the head of his body, the church. And that means that he gives his power and his authority to the church to accomplish his purposes in the world. As we, as the church, obey Christ and as we follow him, he will give us victory because he's already won the victory. You know, Ephesus today, if you go there, it's an abandoned city. It's dead. The harbor silted up, which means the ships couldn't get in there anymore. Commerce dried up. There's no more business. There's no more reason to live there. And people left. If you Go to Ephesus today. It's just a pile of rubble and a couple of old buildings. Uh, and uh, cool, cool to see. People who love going there are the archaeologists. And they've been digging it up for quite a while. And uh, one of the, the places they excavated, they came across a home. And on the wall of the home was this inscription. This is what it was written. It said, Rome, the ruler of all, your power will never die. Now, in that day, that was no little claim. You have to understand how all-powerful Rome was. It's hard for us to comprehend. But Rome, for 800 years, had been growing and expanding in power. I mean, the United States has only been a nation for 200 years. And really, it's only in the last 50 years that you've got any kind of significant power. Rome, for 800 years, had been utterly dominant in that part of the world. And there was no other civilized government in that part of the world that could oppose it. Not only that, it was led by powerful and charismatic and dynamic leaders who demanded that the people worship them. And on top of that, they had the greatest technology of their day, performed what people considered modern-day marvels of of, uh, technology. They had the mightiest military in the world. And in the midst of that, the church was so small. 
And yet, as you know, today, if you want to go see the Roman Empire, you need to book yourself a trip to see a bunch of old buildings and rubble. Kind of cool, but, but the Roman Empire is dead. And it's been almost 2,000 years since anybody has bowed their knee to worship an emperor. And nobody today, nobody builds their calendar around the birth and the life of Caesar Augustus. But the church, the church continues to grow. Church isn't a pile of rocks. The church is a living temple, growing and spreading around the world, bringing the good news of Jesus Christ everywhere it goes. And while no one is worshiping the emperor today, today millions upon millions upon millions of people bend their knee to worship Jesus. So, when we look around at this city that God has put us in, let's not be like Elisha's servant. Let's not just see these powerful forces that are arrayed against the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Instead, let's go and let's be the church in this city. In fact, that's what the rest of Ephesians is all about, what it means to be the church and how we should live as the church. Let's go from this place with a deep sense of confidence that God has chosen us and that he will work through us. Let's go knowing how much he loves us, that he cherishes us, that he wants to use us. And let's go knowing the incredible power, the same power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in you and I when we go out from this place. And let's go knowing that Jesus is already victorious, that in the end, in the end, he will win. Praise God, right? Amen. Would you stand with me for closing prayer? Let's pray. God, we thank you for Jesus. God, it's all because of Jesus. It's all through Jesus. It's all for Jesus. We thank you that, that, that he chose us, that you chose us to be your people, to be salt and light in this world. God, we thank you put us in this city, such a beautiful city. Father, a city, though, that needs the good news of Jesus. So, Father, we pray uh, for us as a church today, Lord, that we as your people would be bold that we would be confident, Father, that we would walk in the, in the knowledge of who you are and what you're doing. And Father, that you would use us. Father, that this city and many in it would come to know the same hope and the same life that we have because of Jesus. So we thank you that we don't do it in our own strength, rather we do it in the strength of what uh, your power working in us. And so we go in that strength. We praise you and bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Lord bless you.